Okay. Welcome to the Sunday show at Progressive News Network. I'm the, your producer and host, Janine Moloff. Well, this week we have basically a continuation of what we talked about last week. Uh, just this past Thursday was the first anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. And basically, we're going to talk today about the GOP response uh, to the Biden speech. Uh, if you look at the advert, you'll see it's called GOP gaslighting on January 6th insurrection. Those of you who are unfamiliar with the term gaslighting, it comes from a movie called Gaslight. And in this movie, it was a Hitchcock thriller, uh, an abusive husband was basically not only abusing his wife, but convincing her that the abuse wasn't really happening and it was all in her imagination. And he was systematically driving her crazy. Since that movie uh, basically aired, you know, decades ago, when you're trying to con somebody, when you're trying to not only con somebody, but convince them that they're the crazy ones, it's referred to as gaslighting. And this is the GOP, the state of events today. So we've marked the first anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, and Biden gave a unusually strong speech. He called out Trump as what I'd say is the insider-in-chief, you know, the, the individual most responsible for inciting this insurrection. And the fact is, this wasn't just an insurrection. That's, I, I, I disagree there. It was an insurrection, but it was more than that. This was what happened on January 6, 2021, was clearly an act of war. It was an act of treasonous war by Trump partisans against democracy itself. And to call it anything less is absurd. All right. So after Biden gave his speech and and for and it was unusually strong and he called out the GOP, predictably, like a bunch of spoiled brats, the GOP of Trump reacted in predictable manner. They were, as I wrote here, predictably entitled. They were predictably gaslighting, gaslighting, and they were predictably racist. Okay. So let's Let's talk about this, all right? And, you know, we expect the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates and uh, someone lesser known, Andrew Clyde, to wave the neo-Confederate flag of white privilege. For the past year, the mainstream GOP stalwarts have maintained that they're not like these racist rabble-rousers. So how do you explain the Twitter storm coming from Lindsey Graham? In true Confederate fashion... In true Jim Crow fashion, Senator Lindsey Graham had a fit over the way Democrats and progressives were, to borrow the contentious language of Jim Crow, quote, waving a bloody shirt. Now, the term waving a bloody shirt refers to white rage over being faced with the ugliness and evil of their racist actions. And it speaks to the outrage that racists feel when they are exposed has racist. So we're going to look to the gaslighting coming from the GOP and the corporate media. And as we covered last week, you know, what good is giving strong speeches when the speeches aren't followed with equally strong action, especially 
respect, especially regarding respecting the right to vote and having your vote counted. Where's the outrage coming from corporate Democrats regarding the massive voter suppression and voter disenfranchisement being perpetrated by the GOP throughout the country at the state level? Where is it? So our big story deals, I'm sorry, I'm kind of not in great voice today. Our big story deals with the state of denial coming from that same GOP of Trump regarding their abusive actions and, frankly, the very abusive nature of the GOP and our state of corporate capture. And then we're going to talk about, after we do this big story, we're going to have, of course, our regular feature, Jackass of the Week. And that one will reflect on the unbelievable, what I'll call jackassery, coming from conservatives on the Supreme Court, specifically Neil Gorsuch, excuse me, a Trump appointee. So it's been a year since the January 6th insurrection. The whole world witnessed the violence that happened last year on January 6th. Okay. And the GOP of Trump has behaved, again, predictably, predictably fascist. The media talking heads like Joe Rogan, who frankly is kind of a moron anyway, but then more media-savvy people like, for instance, Dana Perino, who was, I believe, a press secretary for George W. Bush, and then Tucker Carlson, who, let's face it, top propagandist on the right, they predictably called out President Biden's speech a year later as politicizing the insurrection, politicizing it. Okay, so, I mean... The insurrection was a political act. In fact, it was a political act of high treason. It, it wasn't as Representative Andrew Clyde from Georgia called out as a, a tourist event. Generally speaking, tourist events don't feature people armed to the teeth with military-grade weapons, people that storm the Capitol building, break down doors, break windows, erect a gallows, a functional gallows, screaming they want to murder then-Vice President Mike Pence. They want to murder uh, Nancy Pelosi and AOC and several others. Um, They attacked and hurt, I think it was like 140 police officers that were seriously wounded. Some died. Okay. And generally... Tourists don't do that. In fact, even the least of their offenses, which was some of these people defecated on the floor of the Capitol building. Okay, and those of you who maybe don't have adequate vocabularies, when I say they defecated on the floor, I mean they shit on the floor, put bluntly. Generally, tourists don't do that. So I don't know what insurrection Andrew Clyde was looking at. Now, it should be mentioned that Representative Andrew Clyde, who called the January 6th insurrection a tourist event, he is a Republican from Georgia, and before he was in politics, he runs, he is a businessman. What does he do? He's a gun dealer. <laughs> no shock there. All righty. We had the AS9 GOP uh, reaction. But the corporate Democrats gave us nothing. All they gave us was 
a pretty speech from President Biden, but they failed to defend Democratic rule in any tangible way. So this report will deal with the GOP response to the memorial held to commemorate the first anniversary of this violent coup and the Democrats' failure to hold powerful people like Donald Trump accountable for their crimes against democracy itself. Essentially, the Democratic Party under President Biden have enabled, enabled the treason of the GOP, the GOP of Trump, acting much like the cowards of Vichy as they refuse to take steps to halt Hitler's rise. This report also addressed the theme that the U.S. is rapidly approaching a second civil war. That theory is incorrect. I would argue that the original civil war of the 1860s never truly ended. And the evidence supporting that accusation is ample throughout our nation. You don't have to look any further than the policies of Jim Crow to see the suppression, to see the truth. Now, the new Jim Crow, or Jim Crow 2.0, is basically uh, multifaceted. Part of it lies in the fact that a GOP-controlled Supreme Court under, you know, Chief Justice, um, under the Chief Justice, basically threw out the enforcement mechanism of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 by throwing out um, the compliance measure, which was preclearance. All right. So you have the court basically dismantling the Civil Rights Act that fought against Jim Crow. That's one. Then you also have this flurry of systemic voter suppression bills becoming law all over the country. And these bills, there's a reason why these bills look suspiciously identical from state to state. They look suspiciously identical because they all come from a template that was created by a lobby group called ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. So, again, no shock here. Let's let's talk about this. Now, truth be told, the events the world witnessed last January 6th weren't merely an insurrection. In fact, I'll, I'll backtrack, all right? I maintain the Civil War never ended. But what happened last January 6th was basically the first fully armed salvo of a renewed Civil War, of a hot Civil War, if you will. And it was an act of high treason. What happened on January 6th, 2021, it was an act of war. It was an act of war incited by Donald Trump. And it was planned. There was a conspiracy to throw out the results of the election that Trump aided and the peop- and, and also to instigate this violent attack on our capital. And it was basically enabled and planned by, full, by multiple fully licensed attorneys, but especially former Chapman Law Professor John Eastman. Now, this attack on democratic rule, it's not going to be defeated by speeches, only be defeated by actively indicting, prosecuting, convicting, and, yes, incarcerating every single person responsible, no exceptions. And the period of incarceration should be long, especially for the top ringleaders. A minimum, I would say, of 20 years 
seriously. And no deferred, deferred prosecution agreement, none of that, and no exceptions. Let's look, at the, let's look at this response to this infamous anniversary of January 6, 2021. And let's look at the response by the feckless corporate Democrats, the fascist GOP, the corporate-controlled media, and the people. So we have, I downloaded the document, the actual uh, transcript from the short speech that Vice President Kamala Harris gave and also the speech that President Biden gave. Now, the Vice President, she cited basically what was in the preamble of the Constitution. And that's the part that talks about, you know, forming a more, more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our prosperity, do ordain and establish this constitution. That sounds nice. But there was another line in this very short speech that she was allotted, which I think is more on, on target. And I say she was allotted, all right? I know that the vice president isn't, it's basically, a, a, you know, despair, if you will. Something happens to the main guy. President Biden has been, frankly, politically very stingy with the vice president. And I think that's in large part because he's too busy <clears throat> trying to pacify the fascist of the GOP. Except it won't work. And it's insulting. But she had this one line. Excuse me. Um, lost my place here. There it is. There's one line in her very short speech that I think says it all. Quote, the violent assault that took place here, the very fact of how close we came to an election overturned, that reflects the fragility of democracy, end quote. And she's right. Then the president took the uh, podium and gave his speech. And he called out Donald Trump which was good. All right. No, no argument here. Um, do I think his speech, the president, do I, let me back up. Do I believe the president Biden's speech was strong enough? No, I don't. There's this one line here. It said, quote, this wasn't a group of tourists. This was an armed insurrection. They weren't looking to uphold the will of the people. They were looking to deny the will of the people. They were looking to uphold. They weren't looking to uphold a free and fair election. They were looking to overturn one. They weren't looking to save the cause of America. They were looking to subvert the Constitution, end quote. <clears throat> that all sounds fine, but it was more. January 6, 2021, I'll say it again, <clears throat> this insurrection was an open act of war, period. These people acted, along with Donald Trump and John Eastman, they acted as Confederates. That's it. They committed high treason. And I don't see any reason to mollycoddle these people anymore. Um, Biden, in the course of his speech, goes on to say you know, about Trump, um, quote, you know, he basically has done quote, he has done what no president in American history, the history of this country, has ever, ever done. 
he refused to accept the results of an election and the will of the American people, end quote. I agree, which is why Donald Trump must be criminally indicted, prosecuted, no deal, and incarcerated for the rest of his days, which actually is a gift because the actual penalty for high treason is execution. But President Biden and the corporate Democrats fail to comprehend, or maybe they don't care, I don't know, is that you will not deter future violence if you don't incarcerate these people, period. There is no saving them, and I don't care. Everybody's been talking about, well, we're going to try and understand why these people did what they did. I don't care. It is not necessary to understand why they did something. They broke the law, period. That's it. Let's move on here, okay? Let's look at the GOP reaction. It wasn't all bad, all right? So there was a piece from the Boston Globe, and it was written by Amanda Kaufman and published January 6th on the same day. And the headline reads, Republicans' reactions to January 6th anniversary ranged from somber to flippant. Here's a look. First of all, on a personal level, and they also mentioned the article, I want to point out the fact that this was to be a memorial service, if you will, commemorating the lives lost on January 6th. That being said, of the entire Republican establishment, only two Republicans showed up. Representative Liz Cheney, and she was escorted by her father, Vice President, the former Vice President Dick Cheney. Not a single other Republican bothered to show. That says something right there. Whether these Republicans were directly involved or not is irrelevant. When you fail to show for a memorial service, you are indirectly endorsing you're indirectly endorsing the insurrection and similar acts. You know, in Florida, neither senator showed up. They're both Republicans, Rick Scott and, um, oh, Lord, I don't know where my brain is. I've been sitting in a cold house for several weeks now, so my, my brain's a little bit on layaway right now. And, um, Lord. Both Republican senators didn't show up, forgive me, okay? Uh, The other Hispanic senator, oh, Marco Rubio, there we go, who frankly, he's not very memorable anyway, so maybe that's why. He's not particularly interesting or important. They didn't show. Here in my native state of Missouri, Josh Hawley, who clearly sided with the insurrectionists, didn't show, of course. But Roy Blunt didn't show up. Now, Senator Roy Blunt has been a member of the National Republican Leadership Committee for decades. He didn't bother to show up either. That's a disgrace. Just a disgrace. Well, let's look at other Republican. I wanted to mention it. 
that Liz Cheney and her father, Dick Cheney, were the only two Republicans in the entire party that showed up for any of the vigils, and, and especially the one in D.C. That is basically total act of disrespect. So let's look at what the reactions were like according to the Boston Globe. All right. Um, excuse me. Now, President Biden, in his speech, accused uh, former President Donald Trump and his allies, allies of, hold, quote, holding a dagger at the throat of democracy, end quote. And I agree. In fact, I would go further to say that Donald Trump and his co-conspirators not only were holding a dagger at the throat of democracy, but they were doing so in the fashion, basically the way most rapists do. That's what happened. The Republican Party raped democracy. Let's look at the reactions, okay? So we have Senator Mitt Romney former Massachusetts governor, long-term um, long-term Republican, former presidential candidate. He did praise what he called the heroic efforts of law enforcement officers, the ones that protected the Capitol. Um, and Romney also, according to this reporter, delivered a, what they called a veiled dig at Trump, okay, to quote Senator Romney. Oh, it should be mentioned, Romney was only one of seven Republicans who voted to impeach Trump in the second impeachment trial uh, regarding, his, regarding Trump's role in the insurrection. At least Romney had the integrity and honesty to do that. Roy Blunt, my senator, stonewalled the, the actual investigation. Okay. To quote Senator Romney, quote, we ignore the lessons of January 6th at our own peril. Democracy is fragile. It cannot survive without leaders of integrity and character who care more about the strength of our republic than about winning the next election, end quote. I don't like Mitt Romney's politics. I really don't trust him, but at least he's done a few good things. I'm going to give credit where credit's due, but not too much credit. Former Vice President Dick Cheney, who accompanied his daughter, Representative Liz Cheney, Liz Cheney is one, is one of the co-leaders of the House Committee investigating the attack. And Dick Cheney said that the anniversary of the attack was, attack was quote, an important historical event. Um, Dick Cheney also told ABC that he was, quote, deeply disappointed we don't have better leadership in the Republican Party to restore the Constitution, end quote. Mitch McConnell was quoted. And Mitch McConnell said January 6th was, quote, a dark day for Congress and our country. McConnell also added that he was, quote, grateful as ever for the brave men and women of the U.S. Capitol Police who served our institution bravely for that day and every day since. Mitch, also, Mitch McConnell also went on, though. He couldn't help but take a dig. So he criticized Washington Democrats who said that, quote, they are, I'm going to try and imitate them. Uh, they are trying to, to exploit this anniversary to advance partisan policy goals that long predated this event. It is especially jaw-dropping to hear some Senate Democrats invoke the mob's attempt to disrupt our country's norms, rules, and institutions as a justification 
to discard our norms, rules, and institutions themselves, end quote. Okay, what can I say? Mitch McConnell really should get the hypocrite of the year award. I mean, first of all, he praises the Capitol Police for protecting them, but he was one of the Republicans that helped to stonewall and make sure that an investigation did not take place in the Senate, along with Roy Blunt. Okay, and if I sound like I'm really nagging about Roy Blunt, it's because Roy Blunt, a lot of people don't know much about him. He hides in the shadows, you know, like most snakes do. And, you know, he he basically finagles and makes deals, you know, in the shadows like that. Keep in mind, though, when Roy Blunt first came to D.C., he had, he had been governor of Missouri. And when he was here in Missouri, he seemed fairly moderate. Then he got to D.C., first in the House of Representatives, and then finally as a U.S. senator. And when he first got to the House, he, he had a mentor. And his mentor was Tom DeLay. You know, the guy that was sent to prison for being crooked? Yeah. And the fact is, there most likely isn't any, any major action, whatever, that happens in D.C. without Roy Blunt's paw prints all over it. But he's smart enough to try and evade much publicity. So, you know, once again, you've got the hypocrisy of Mitch McConnell and the others that, you know, once again, they're screaming that we shouldn't politicize what happened January 6th. Well, you know, I guess the GOP of Trump has some amnesia, because collective amnesia at that, because they're the ones that politicized COVID-19. They're the ones that politicized scientific and medical decisions like masking and vaccinating. And because they politicized that, we've lost eight, over 800,000 American lives. Now, we don't hear Mitch McConnell bemoaning that, but he doesn't like the fact that the Democrats have politicized what was an act, clearly an act of high treason, you know, basically an act of war with Trump's blessing. But apparently McConnell doesn't have a problem with that. Old Mitchie. Now we get to probably the worst one of all, Lindsey Graham. So South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, he went on to Twitter, and he, he criticized Biden after the speech for, quote, I'm going to use his southern accent, for his brazen politicization of January 6th. Okay. So then Graham went on in his tweet to reference how Biden pulled out of Afghanistan and 13 troops were killed in a suicide bombing at Kabul's airport, you know, as they tried to evacuate <clears throat> Americans and American allies and Afghan citizens that assisted. Now, mind you, backtrack a little. The uh, leaving Afghanistan like we did was stupidly done. Get no arguments from me there. Unfortunately, Joe Biden was stuck with it because it was part of a deal that Donald Trump basically signed off on. So once again, if Lady Lindsay is going to criticize Biden, he's got to criticize Trump then too. And oh, it was not an accident me calling him Lady Lindsay. Now, Mind you, 
nothing against the LGBTQ community. It's really all about the fact that Lindsey Graham has had rumors circulate about him for decades. I don't know if it's true or not. It's just gossip. But he has the hypocrisy to act all churchy about it. So maybe that was a cheap shot. I shouldn't call him Lady Lindsay, so I'll take that back. But Lindsey Graham had the gall to claim that Biden and the Democrats politicized the January 6th insurrection, but he hasn't called out how the GOP of Trump has politicized, again, COVID-19, how Donald Trump's lies have resulted in many more hundreds of thousands of deaths, Apparently, Lindsay didn't see that. Now, get a little further into this. This reporter from the Boston Globe explained that, really, since the riot of January 6th, months afterwards, there's been multiple Republicans that have tried to, you know, rewrite the history of that day. Okay? And, you know, they... We live in an internet era, okay? There's film everywhere, but apparently these old-timers don't understand that or don't don't remember. I don't know. Um, you know, right after January 6th happened, Lindsey Graham, there's film where, you know, he said Trump bore responsibility for the attack, and he got up and in front of the cameras, you know, tried to distance himself from Trump, saying, quote, count me out, enough is enough, end quote. Okay. Mitch McConnell, the same thing. Days after the insurrection, McConnell was filmed on the Senate floor saying, quote, the mob was fed lies and that they were, quote, provoked by the president and other powerful people and they tried to use fear and violence to stop a specific proceeding of the first branch of the federal government, which they did not like, end quote. Then a month later, February of 21, a month, you know, month after, the insurrection. McConnell also said that Trump was, quote, morally responsible for the attack. Okay? But now they're getting on Biden for politicizing what happened January 6th. Now, there's another GOP uh, politician, Governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, or as some of us call him, Ron DeSantis, He expressed uh, during a press conference that Thursday, January 6th, was, quote, Christmas for the media and accused journalists, and and that basically the press is obsessed with the attack. To quote DeSantis, quote, they are going to take this and milk this for anything they could to try to be able to smear anyone who ever supported Donald Trump, end quote. And what I'll say to good old Ronnie boy is, We don't need your freaking Christmas, and we really don't need to worry about smearing, you know, the Donald, because he did it to himself, all right? Enough evidence has leaked out from Trump's own, his own own staffers that as this violent attack was going on, Trump was sitting in the White House dining room watching everything on TV, and then, you know, after it was filmed, it was on tape, and then he would rewind it and play, replay it back over and over again, smiling and saying, well, look how they're fighting for me. He was gleeful. 
Donald Trump was gleeful, so Mr. DeSantis, no. We don't need to hear, you know, your little two cents about how this is going to, uh, how the Democrats are using to smear Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump not only smeared himself, but, you know, Donald Trump is like the stupid chimpanzee that not only plays with his own feces, but smears it all over himself and claims it's perfume. And, you know, people in, in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. You know, DeSantis is leading a state where it was finally exposed that over a million COVID tests were allowed to expire under his watch. And why is that important? It's important because if the tests expire, it makes it artificially look like the COVID rate in Florida is lower than it is. That's why, you know, DeSantis needs to, as the saying goes, shut his damn stupid pie hole. So we have another article here from Vox written by uh, Zach Beauchamp, and it's entitled The Hollowness of Biden's January 16th. The subheadline is the president's rhetoric on democracy is great. It's the policy that's the problem. Now, I could get in all that. I don't really need to. You know, basically, Biden took the bully pulpit. He reminded Americans that this was an illegal attack, that this was a brutal attack. He pointed out the absurdity of Trump's lies regarding the the election. All right, there's been, what, over 60 cases that were brought by Republican attorney generals at the state level, including Missouri's own Eric Schmidt. They're frivolous lawsuits. They were kicked out of court as having absolutely no merit to the claims, including they were kicked out of court by, I believe it was nine judges who were Trump appointees. What does it take? So we know all this. But one thing about Beauchamp that he's right about, it is the policy that's the problem. And the policy is, regardless whether you're a a, um, conservative or liberal or moderate, the policy is that our government has been uh, under what's called corporate capture for decades now. All right? Corporate capture refers to the takeover of legal and governmental functions by corporate operatives. You know, basically, we don't have an aristocracy or a monarchy, supposedly, in this country. But in a way, we do. But it's an aristocracy and a monarchy of wealth. Um, The monarch are corporate heads. The aristocracy are corporate heads, politicians, and the corporate attorneys that push this nonsense. And until we get an independent government that is going to actually obey the Constitution, it does all the free speech in the world wants to make up for that. Um, But we have several others, like uh, Ezra Levin, who's the co-founder of Indivisible, issued um, an opinion to quote Levin, quote, in the years since the attack on the Capitol, the Democratic Congress has methodically advanced legislation to safeguard our elections. Up to this point, the president has barely lifted a finger, end quote. Here's the thing. I would counter what Ezra Levin said. Now, 
Ezra Levin, as I said before, is a co-founder of this alleged pro-democracy activist group known as Indivisible. Now, let's be honest about Indivisible. Indivisible started out as an activist group. And while it was still, majority of the people in it were still what I would call eh, fairly affluent white liberals, you know, of the Nancy Pelosi, Barack Obama type, I think they meant well. But Indivisible has turned into uh, a very weak group in terms of holding people accountable. They are more like the corporate Democrats that enable these policies. So I have no respect for Indivisible. Um, And, you know, let's, let's look at what Levin said. All right. He's saying that Democratic Congress has pushed legislation to safeguard our elections, but the President Biden's done practically nothing. Let's be honest about this. It wouldn't have mattered how many, uh, how much legislation that corporate Democrats pushed, because as long as the Senate moderates, that means, yeah, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema's mothers, are unwilling to abandon the filibuster, then we're stuck. Now, let's, let's be honest about this. They haven't wanted to abandon the filibuster. And then let's look at it. Why are we calling the likes of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema moderates? There's nothing moderate about either one of them. I mean, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are clearly guilty of influence peddling to the GOP of Trump, the GOP of Mitch McConnell, the GOP of Kevin McCarthy, and so on. And that's why they're backing the filibuster. A filibuster is the way you stonewall any effective legislation. All it takes is one member, period. And then you have to have 60 votes to get past it, which we don't have. Now, make no mistake about it. The filibuster has no actual mention in the Constitution. The founding fathers don't really talk about it. It is a Senate creation, and originally it was intended to stop any meaningful movement for equal rights for racial minorities, okay? It was basically the tool used by Southern bigots to keep Jim Crow in effect. Now, in recent years, the filibuster has been used to protect, again, this ongoing corporate capture of our nation to make sure that this corporate dictatorship survives no matter what. And as long as the filibuster remains intact, there will be no meaningful legislation. Let's make no mistake about it. So when Ezra Levin accuses President Biden of inaction, that misses the main point. Namely, the GOP of Trump continues to veer closer to Nazism every day. And the corporate moderate Democrats, not just Joe Manchin Cinema, but also Senator Schumer uh, and, and the whole Nancy Pelosi, the whole bunch of them, they veer closer to the inaction of the historic cowards of Vichy, the very cowards that enabled Hitler to attain great power. We don't need milquetoast commentary from Indivisible. Indivisible said, more from an actual reform group to another hapless arm of the corporate Democrats. We just don't need it. So let's move on, okay? Okay. 
Give me a minute, folks. It's not in good voice today. Then there remains, the, again, the rest of the GOP. And one thing this writer says is that majority of institutional Republicans are, quote, either viscerally pro-Trump or too afraid of crossing him to speak out. And that, that as documented by thedailybeast.com. Okay. And the headline was, the real tragedy of January 6th is still not over. And I believe that. I, I believe that there are probably a lot of Republicans that don't like Trump, but they're terrified of crossing him. There are some that really like him. Okay. I'll accept that point. I don't care. That still remains an excuse, an excuse for fascism. I don't care what the reasons are for these Republicans to remain silent and enable Trump. The clear fact, the clear legal fact, is that these insurrectionists that committed an act of war and the politicians that incited and or conspired to bring the insurrection into effect are all guilty of high treason. And they must be, as I said before, criminally indicted, prosecuted, convicted, and incarcerated. And I would prefer for a minimum each of 20 years. No deals, no deferred prosecution agreements, period. That's it. I do feel bad that the few, the two Republicans that have tried to be reasonable, in other words, Liz Cheney and Pete Major, they have been threatened. They've been um, receiving death threats, and that is as documented by PBS.org. Um, that was the article with death threats, primary challenge, follow Representative Major's vote to impeach Trump. And they were demoted, according to NBC News. Demoting Cheney, GOP holds Trump with uh, basically NBC News. Um, and Biden isn't going to be able to change that with any speeches. Okay, it's not going to happen. It just isn't. Now, I appreciate what Liz Cheney and Pete Major have done. And we should thank them because they are taking a risk but within reason. You know, why do we feel the need to congratulate these people for doing their job, for doing what is decent? You know, have we as a nation so low that our moral ethical compass requires what? Gold stars and good jobs, you know, written on a paper like a little two-year-old for doing what they were supposed to do in the first place, for fulfilling their legal obligation according to the oath they took that they swore in terms of upholding the Constitution, you know, upholding the Constitution from enemies both you know, abroad and domestic, it's written right into the document. So, you know, this is what we're dealing with, folks. Okay. Could Biden do more? Yes. Yes, he could. Uh, I understand that President Biden came in with, you know, basically COVID was everything because, let's face it, Trump's, uh, treat, Trump's handling of the COVID crisis was a major, not just a failure, it, it made the crisis far worse. He bungled it horribly. And Trump didn't just bungle it, he bungled it with premeditation. And we've talked about that on the show before. But 
we also need the president to continue to be stronger. You know, he's the titular head of the party. And he needs to borrow a page from someone who also came from the Senate and became president, and he knew how to move things along. And that was LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson. LBJ knew where all the all the proverbial bones were buried, all the bodies were buried in the Senate. And yes, he used a carrot, but he wasn't afraid to use a stick. And the fact is, that's what we have to do. We have to go. We have to not only go after these, you know, these democratic, um, uh, what should we call them, traitors. Uh, that's probably not exactly accurate. We have to go after Mansion and Cinema as well as several blue dogs who hide behind Mansion and Cinema. But you need to also realize that the corporate Democrats really don't want the filibuster to end either, no matter what they say. As long as the filibuster remains intact, the Democrats can say, well, look, the Republicans are doing all this, and then they filibustered us, so there's nothing we can do. So basically, the, Rep- the Democrats are playing good cop to the Republicans' bad cop, and both parties are pleasing their corporate overlords. Okay? That's what this is about. And, you know, this is what we're dealing with. This is what we're stuck with. Even when there was an overt act of high treason. So we need the Department of Justice to do their job. Now, I understand that the president is trying to remain separate from DOJ. And I'm fine with that. And I'm sure Merrick Garland is a brilliant jurist, and I know he worked as a prosecutor before, but perhaps his day is done. If it had been me, I wouldn't have appointed Merrick Garland as attorney general. I would have appointed Katie Porter, you know, the lady with the whiteboard. She nails them every time. She has the cojones to go after them. That's who we need, period. And not only go after the Republicans, but if there's a few Democrats that knew about this and remained silent, go after them too. So we need the president to really demand accountability. We need him to put pressure on Manchin and Cinema. Now, there's a danger that Manchin can become a Republican and then we lose our Senate uh, majority. But we don't really have a Senate majority anyway, except numerically. They can't get anything done. I mean, maybe, maybe the Dems should offer a few little carrots, if you will, to a few moderate Republicans to come over to our side. You know? Maybe eh, four or five of them. That would essentially nullify cinema and mansion right away. That would be what I would do. But, you know, I'm not president, and I don't want to be. <laughs> so I'm just saying, you have to strategize. If it were me, yes, I, I can picture in my mind, we can probably find five Republicans that are not totally insane, that are really that terrified of Donald Trump, give them good committee assignments, 
if they come on over to the Democratic side. That's if you actually want to win. So getting back to the topic, let's go back to Lindsey Graham. Now, in the New Republic, uh, Timothy Noah published a really good article um, titled, let's see now, Lindsey Graham's Neo-Confederate Response to Joe Biden's January 6th Speech. Conservatives don't like it when liberals wave the bloody shirt. That's a taboo invented by Southern defenders of the Ku Klux Klan during Reconstruction. Wow. That says it all. And this is where we're getting into the whole bloody shirt thing. So, basically, excuse me, <clears throat> drink water here. Timothy Noah starts out talking about how President Biden commemorated the first anniversary of January 6th. And then to quote Noah, he said, Republicans answered, quote, how dare you? Uh, he goes on to say, quote, their objection was not to the idea that the insurrectionist riot was a terrible event, because obviously it was. Rather, they said it was politically inflammatory of Biden to say so out loud. Wow. That says it all right there. Okay. So what is Noah really talking about? He's talking about a very disgraceful history of the South, of the Confederacy. So he goes into how um, basically uh, there's this quote by Biden, in Biden's speech, quote, those who stormed this Capitol and those who instigated and incited and those who called on them to, to do so held a dagger as the throat of America and American democracy, end quote. Okay, so Lindsey Graham responded in a tweet storm, among other things, saying that, quote, it would have been so easy for terrorists to bootstrap onto this protest. Graham went on to say, quote, I have consistently condemned the attack. But apparently, Graham objected to the fact that Biden and the vice president spoke, they, they made these speeches in statuary hall, in statuary halls. Um, Graham went on to say, quote, the Biden administration seems to be incapable of dealing with the challenges America faces, and their efforts to politicize January 6th will fall flat. And Noah asked the question, and I agree with him, how do you not bring politics into this? It was a political, they call it a coup. It was a political act of war against democracy. It was a political act of war against the United States from other people, other citizens of the United States. That is civil war. I don't know why so many people are saying, oh, where they're terrified there's going to be another civil war. Sweetheart, we're already in it. January 6th was the first hot salvo. Make no mistake about it. So what's the history behind what Lindsey Graham was implying? It's deep. So to quote the article, to quote the, quote the article, quote the author, Timothy Noah, he goes on to say, quote, let's not waste any more time pulling apart the logic of Graham's response. It's too easy. I'm more interested in its rhetorical form, which has become a familiar construct in Republican discourse. 
It's just this. I may be free to acknowledge that my side committed a wrong, but for the other side to acknowledge it is more deplorable than the original wrong, end quote. That's what's really going on. So I'm going to say it again. This author is saying that, quote, while I may be free to acknowledge that my side committed a wrong, but for the other side to acknowledge it is more deplorable than the original wrong. Okay? Folks, that is exactly how an abuser reacts. Whether it's a child abuser, someone who abuses animals, a wife beater, that's how they act. They're basically saying, you made me hit you, and how dare you call me an abuser for abusing you? Because at the end of the day, when we're talking about the evils of racism, the evils of misogyny, the evils of religious bigotry, we're talking about evil of abuse. We're talking about abusive systems. Make no mistake about it. Um, and then the author, uh, Trevor, uh, the author of this article, New Republic, also says, quote, we encounter this frequently when conservatives condemn liberals for pointing out instances of racism. To call some person a thing racist goes the implied logic is worse than actually being or doing something racist, end quote. And you see this all the time. Okay, I have a neighbor. We used to be friends. We're not friends anymore because I just got tired of trying to understand, you know, why she failed to, to see that her attitudes were racist and religiously bigoted. And I just got tired of it. When you point it out, when you point out that they are fine tolerating racism and they call them out as racist themselves, they become enraged. Well, you know what I tell people like that? If you don't want to be called racist, then don't do racist things. But again, this goes in hand in hand with the you made me hit you attitude of an abuser. Now, this particular author, he uh, talks to several different professors to try and understand this further. It's New Republic. It's a more academic publication. So one of the people he um, talked to was Rob Goodman. He's an assistant professor of the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University in Toronto. And he also, this Professor Goodman was also a speechwriter uh, for then U.S. House Majority Leader Denny Hoyer, as well as Senator Chris Dodd. Um, this is really a, a kind of, he calls it nominalism, okay, this phenomenon. And the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, he quotes it, um, defines nominalism as, quote, a rejection of abstract objects or a rejection of universals in defiance of Plato, end quote. And it goes on to say, this is, I'm quoting Professor Goodman, quote, you say this is a tennis shoe? There is no such thing as a tennis shoe. Merely a variety of objects that conform to some falsely accepted notion, tennis shoe. And by extension, you say January 6th was an insurrection? There are no insurrections. Merely protests that conform to some falsely accepted notion that is insurrection, end quote. Now, I would go further and say, look, Lindsey Graham is just baiting the base. 
and the base consists of ugly racists, ugly bigots, nothing more. Uh, I am tired of hearing about the nice Trump supporter. You know, the person is a decent person, and they voted for Donald Trump because he had business acumen. Hogwash. At the end of the day, you could not ignore what Donald Trump was and is, namely a racist neo-Nazi, period. You can't ignore that. And these alleged nice Trump supporters, no, they knew what they were voting for. If you can vote for Donald J. Trump, who was really open about what he was and what he wanted to do, then yes, you are a racist. There are no nice Trump supporters. Just as there were no nice Hitler supporters. Now, was Donald Trump as destructively successful as Hitler? No, not yet. But the sentiment was clearly there. So, again, this is a way of intellectualizing the obvious. And once again, to me, it sounds like making excuses. It's that old adage, we're trying to understand why Trump supporters, who are normally nice people in some instances, why they went along with this. I don't care to understand them. I care to make sure they obey the law. That's it. I don't care what their rationale was for voting for Trump, because these are people that want the benefit of unearned privilege. They're fine with somebody else doing their dirty work for them. And they don't want to be faced with the ugliness of their own ethical and moral lapses. That's what this is all about. Denial ain't just a river in Egypt. Get a little real here. So we're going to get to the waving the bloody shirt metaphor, which is really about confronting racists with their ugliness because, and then they scream, and that's what Lindsey Graham is doing because Don't you know you're supposed to apologize to your abuser for making them hit you, right? Wrong. So let's talk about the history of the bloody shirt metaphor, and this will all make better sense. Now, waving the bloody shirt, that phrase, is the ultimate insult to racists. Uh, I would say it's akin to waving a red flag in front of a damn stupid bull. So here's the, the history behind it. It was 1871. And there were approximately 120 heavily armed KKK Klansmen in Mississippi. And they targeted a Yankee named Alan P. Huggins. Now, Huggins was the superintendent of schools there in Mississippi in this town, and he wanted to educate some black children. Now, the Klansmen told him, and I'm going to use a Southern accent, I'm going to mock him. They told him, Huggins, you leave town within 10 days or we're going to kill your damn ass. So Huggins said no. So one of the Klansmen, several I guess, they beat him bloody to a pulp with a stirrup. They hit him 25 times. He continued to say no, he's not leaving. Then they hit him 25 times more. He still said no. Then they hit him 25 times more, and at this point, he was, quote, senseless, more dead than alive. So, he, you know, he basically passed out from all the abuse, all the torture, 
And then when he regained consciousness, these Klansmen, these KKK bastards, pointed their guns at him, and they said that uh, if they ever saw him again, they'd kill him. Huggins took it to court. In fact, he testified about this the the next year before Congress. Now, it's at this point, the point where Huggins gives congressional testimony, that the author says it becomes a bit difficult to separate truth from legend, okay? But the way the story goes is there was a U.S. Army lieutenant, and he got his hands on the shirt that Huggins was wearing that night that was, you know, more blood than shirt, and that this Army lieutenant delivered it to Washington to then-Republican Representative Benjamin F. Butler of Massachusetts. Now, you have to remember, it's the 1870s, shortly after the Civil War. At that point in time, the Republicans, they were the party of Lincoln. They were the party against slavery. The Democrats were pro-slavery. So Butler, Congressman Butler then, according to legend, weighed Huggins' bloody shirt on the floor of the House while he, you know, basically went about to tell Huggins' story. And he also, according to legend, denounced the Klan's vicious, racist, and violent campaign of terror. From this story, the phrase, waving the bloody shirt, became, according to the historian Dudiansky, quote, the standard expression of dismissive Southern contempt whenever a Northern politician mentioned any of the thousands of murders, whippings, mutilations, and rapes that were perpetrated against freed men and women and white Republicans in the South in those years. Okay, end quote. So waving the bloody shirt was also just considered a political staple of many uh, vicious and sarcastic editorials that filled Southern newspapers. This was, the waving the bloody shirt was the base, waving the the red flag for indignant southern bigots, okay, and then they went on to say that these these orations by southern white political leaders, you know, they were the ones the old Confederacy that protested that quote no people had suffered more, been humiliated more, been punished more than they had, okay, then that was the southern mind during Reconstruction, so. To encapsulate this, the idea was if you bloodied a shirt, in other words, you beat someone to a pulp so that their shirt and their body was more blood than anything else, that was bad. But, quote, to wave that bloodied shirt was beneath contempt. Trevor, I mean, sorry, Timothy Noah basically is accusing Lindsey Graham of waving the bloody shirt. Um, And to quote Timothy Noah, the author of this article, quote, a century and one half later, the South and the North have switched parties. But the South, in the person of Graham, Lindsey Graham, still takes exception to waving a bloody shirt along with the rest of the Republican Party, not because it's demagogic, but because it reveals the Republicans' profound and still unaddressed culpability, end quote. Okay. Basically, it's abusers that become more enraged and ugly when you speak truth to them and label their behavior for the abuse it is. That's our big story. Again, I apologize I'm in bad voice today. 
conclusion. So we've marked the first anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. And President Biden gave a strong speech, really um, shockingly so. And he practically called out Trump as the insider-in-chief behind this massive act of violent treason, which, again, should be recognized as the first salvo in a second hot American civil war. The GOP of Trump reacted in a predictable manner. They were predictably entitled. They were predictably gaslighting. They were predictably racist. We expect the likes, as I said before, of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, and so on, to wave this neo-Confederate flag of white privilege. For the past year, the mainstream GOP stalwarts have maintained that they are, that they are not like these racist rabble-rousers. Okay? I'm going to say that again. For the past year, the old guard of the GOP, the Lindsey Graham, the Roy Blunt, um, the John Cornyns, the Mitch McConnells, okay, the Kevin McCarthy's, all right, and so on and so forth. They have maintained that they are not like these younger racist rabble-rousers. Okay. Then how do you explain the Twitter storm coming from Lindsey Graham? In true Confederate fashion, in true Jim Crow fashion, Senator Lindsey Graham had a fit over the way Democrats and progressives were, quote, waving a bloody shirt. The term waving a bloody shirt refers to white rage over being faced with the ugliness and evil of their racist history and actions. It speaks to the outrage racists feel when they are exposed as racist. So while it's been stated that waving a bloody shirt is considered beneath contempt by Southerners, journalists have a duty to reject this privileged attitude of naked entitlement. Waving a bloody shirt is not the problem. The core problem lies in the evil politics of white supremacy and neo-Nazism, the same politics that produced that bloody shirt in the first place. The incensed tone of Lindsey Graham echoes the wounded pride of the child abuser, the wife beater, the murdering Klansman, the murdering Nazi. Rather than tolerate how the corporate-owned press struggle to understand the GOP of Trump, we should be demanding accountability. Every person involved in this clear conspiracy to complete a bloody coup, placing Trump as permanent dictator, to commit an act of war against the Constitution, against the United States, every one of them must be, I'll say it again, criminally indicted, prosecuted, convicted, and incarcerated for the rest of their days. And that includes the person most responsible, Donald Trump. To do less will only further enable another coup, though perhaps less bloody at the onset, though perhaps granted the masquerade of technical legality, see Alec for that one, will be far too similar to the successful coup conducted under this former stewardship of Adolf Hitler. That's our big story, folks. Now, we're going to get to some jackassery. You know, I love it. Dr. Uh, Rashad Ritchie on the Young Turks, you know, he has, um, you know, Karen, the Karen of the week. You know, he refers to Karenicity, which is basically people that are, feel they should be so privileged 
that the rules don't apply to them. So as a way of honoring Dr. Ritchie, I came up with this jackass of the week. And this is celebrating and reporting on acts of extreme jackassery. And this week, the jackass of the week is Supreme Court Judge Neil Gorsuch. Why Judge Gorsuch? Well, there's a case before the Supreme Court right now. And basically, it is several attorney generals, one specifically, again, here in Missouri, Eric Schmidt, who are fighting the vaccine um, and mask mandates of certain employers uh, issued by President Biden. And it really isn't even a mandate, all right? It's saying that if you are a federal worker or if you are a contractor and you receive a federal contract, in order to maintain employment or in, in order to maintain that federal contract, your employees must either be fully vaccinated and be able to produce proof or they have to undergo uh, routine COVID testing. That's it. And the federal government has a right to demand certain things. That's not discriminating against anything. But this case is in front of the court, and, it, and I'm going to be talking about it more, especially um, it's going to be mentioned in a series I'm doing on corporate capture that's going to run on, on BuzzFlash. And that's my publishing home. And basically, it's not just about COVID. It's about this this nonsense made up by the Supreme Court called the non-delegation doctrine, which is basically saying that if there's a federal agency and a lot of the decisions for regulations that are routinely made, though reflecting the law, they're decided by agency heads, often people that are in that industry. So, you know, for instance, it makes sense. If you're in health and human services, of course, you should want uh, a scientist or medical doctor helping to make those decisions. If the non-delegation doctrine um, goes through, then every time an agency wants to change even a slight difference of a regulation or issue a regulation that's already in law, they'll have to get permission from the Congress. It essentially strips the president and his agencies of any power. It's very dangerous. But in terms of the jackassery of Neil Gorsuch, he suggested that flu kills hundreds of thousands each year, and he equated COVID-19 with the flu. Okay? And he did so during oral arguments, and social media went to town on him. Um, and, you know, again, this is about President Biden's mandate. Large companies that require employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19 or be tested weekly. Um, that this mandate more specifically would be monitored and enforced by OSHA, which is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Now, the liberal judges in the court were fine with it. The conservative, course, the conservative judges didn't like it. And Simon Gorsuch was Trump's first nominee to the court. And he believed that, quote, hundreds of thousands of people die from the seasonal flu, end quote. Well, it really does. That's not exactly true. Um, so Newsweek did an article on this, and this article was written by Jason Lemon, and it was published on the 7th. And they reached out to the Supreme Court's public office, a public information office, which, you know, is basically the press person. 
and they did so multiple times using email and the phone for clarification of what Justice Gorsuch said. They have not received a response. Um, quote, Gorsuch said the flu kills people every year. Traditionally, OSHA does not regulate in this area. End quote. Um, the U.S. Solicitor General, Elizabeth Perloger, said, quote, COVID-19 is unprecedented. Perloger also said, quote, we have flu vaccines, flu kills. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Maybe, no. The Solicitor General said COVID-19 is unprecedented. And Gorsuch's response was, quote, we have flu vaccines, flu kills. I believe hundreds of thousands of people every year. How do we regulate that? Well, that's not really true. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, the flu annually kills between 12 and 52,000 Americans annually. That's a big difference from hundreds of thousands. And then when you look at COVID, COVID has killed over 800,000 Americans in slightly under two years. That's a big difference. Um, so once again, um, you know, Gorsuch received a lot of flack, and he, he deserved it. Uh, Ellie Mistal is a justice correspondent at The Nation, and she tweeted after Gorsuch said the flu kills hundreds of thousands of people every year. Mistal, Ellie Mistal uh, tweeted, no, it does not. Stop getting your medical stats from Fox News. <laughs> oh. And Ellie Mistal went on to link accurate data about flu and COVID-19 deaths. Misal also added, quote, I know Gorsuch. I'm, I'm sorry, Misal added, quote, I know Gorsuch nor any conservative nor, nor any OMG on board and want to go to the movies person will apologize for their consistent COVID misinformation. But COVID is orders of magnitude more deadly than the goddamn flu. There's more. Um, excuse me. I apologize. I'm in a bad voice. Journalist Aaron Rupar um, also tweeted, he said, quote, the flu kills about 30,000 Americans each year. I'm kind of surprised Gorsuch would broadcast his ignorance like this. I looked this up with help from Google in about 10 seconds, end quote. Uh, Kaven Schroff is a digital Democratic digital organizer, and he um, said, quote, he accused Gorsuch of, quote, in, injecting disinformation into the debate on vaccine mandates, um, he falsely claimed that the flu kills hundreds of thousands of people every year. CDC says 12 to 50,000 die from flu annually. Further, he says, quote, um, in the U.S., CDC estimates the flu kills between 12 to 52,000 per year. Globally, the World Health Organization estimates that flu kills between 290,000 to 600,000 per year. Okay, that's globally. Gorsuch is either 10 times off the mark or has confused the U.S. with the world. Okay, and that last quote, I take that back. That last quote was from Dr. Alexandra Filan. So let me back up a little bit here. Forgive me. I've been sitting in a cold house. I have one room that's habitable because I'm still waiting on my annuity company. My furnace bit the dust. And it said, Kevin Schroff accused Gorsuch of injecting disinformation into the debate on vaccine mandates. He falsely claimed that flu kills hundreds of thousands of people every year. CDC says 12 to 50,000 die from flu annually, and Kevin Schroff is a Democratic digital organizer. Now, this next one is Dr. Alexandra Feeling, who is an assistant professor at Georgetown. And 
Dr. Phelan tweeted, quote, in the U.S., CDC estimates the flu kills between 12 to 52,000 per year. Globally, WHO, in other words, World Health Organization, estimates the flu kills between 290,000 to 600,000 per year. Gorsuch is either 10 times off the mark or has confused the U.S. with the world. Uh, Dr. Phelan went on to say, quote, both possibilities, flu max mandates, are also not uncommon, end quote. Okay. Now, the article was updated to reflect that um, some have disputed the transcript of Gorsuch's remarks, whatever. You know, once again, the arrogance of the legal profession shines brightly. I don't know where or when Neil Gorsuch received his license to practice medicine or a degree in epidemiology. Oh, wait, he didn't. That's why Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch embraces jackassery wholeheartedly. In the meanwhile, this is really, it goes farther than jackassery. You know, I have a theory about that particular case and how it ties into non-delegation. Maybe this argument against, against vaccine mandates, maybe it's a sleeper to have an excuse to push this non-delegation doctrine so that they can basically defang all federal agencies. Everything would be deregulated. And while, you know, the open market idiots would love that, we really don't want to go back to the times where you basically held your breath, bought meat, prayed it wasn't diseased because there were no regulations governing what corporate could do. And that's what we're dealing with now. And we don't want to go back to that. So once again, Neil Gorsuch, Supreme Court Justice, is our jackass of the week for wholeheartedly embracing jackassery. And um, we're going to be back next week for more. Um, You know, once again, hopefully by then I will uh, have a new furnace in my house. I'm living out of one room with a heater. Um, That's another story. Like a lot of ex-teachers, I had an annuity, and my annuity company was bought out from ING to Voya. And basically, even though it's my money, they're doing everything in their power to delay and keep me from obtaining my money. I can, I have the money to get a new furnace. I just can't, I'm not being allowed to access my money. And this is a totally different subject, but when I looked up consumer complaints against Voya, which is located in New York City. It was one story after another about how Voya had refused to send money to people. It was their money, how they had defrauded them over and over and over again. So don't be shocked if I do a story on that soon. Anyway, that's our story for this Sunday. Next week, Rick Spizak should be back with a a special feature, and we always look forward to that. I encourage you to check out Rick Spizak's poetry program. Um, You can also check out shows that I do on the Environmental Justice Report. Uh, We will be be doing a show on that soon. Uh, And you can also check out uh, pieces that I've written, my my publishing home at BuzzFlash, working on a series on corporate capture. I hope you learned something from our program. 
I hope that the Donald, the big orange dumb evil one, is listening because I just want to say, Donnie boy, I know that an orange jumpsuit to match your orange complexion will look fabulous, darling. All right. With that, I say good night, and oh, God bless us. <laughs>